and Lionel told him to please do something about it, ASAP, because he, Lionel, did not want to have to change his phone number. And it was Swung Duk who had suggested that he see a mental health professional, and had furnished him with a list of people who would treat people temporarily unable to pay. When he started having suicidal thoughts, Charlie took out the list and scanned it, looking for someone convenient to Brentwood. He avoided driving to places in more remote areas of the city, because he was using an expired Union 76 gas card, whose existence he had not disclosed to Swung Duk as he was supposed to, and which would certainly be shut down soon. This was not the first time that Charlie Burns had considered pulling the plug. A year and a half before winning the Best Picture Oscar, he had actually hooked up a hose to the exhaust pipe of his about-to-be-repossessed Mercedes and fed it through the doggy door of his Beverly Hills house, after having taped up all the windows meticulously with gaffer's tape. It was only the fortuitous arrival of his nephew Lionel, just off the Greyhound from New Jersey, that had kept Charlie from drifting into oblivion on the fumes of his fuel-injected engine. And it was Lionel's script, based on the life of the nineteenth-century British Prime Minister Benjamin Disraeli, that Charlie had optioned, had a drunken hack named Madison Carney rewrite into a Middle Eastern action movie called Lev Disraeli, Freedom Fighter, got the studio to invest fifty million dollars in against domestic box office after he managed to get a black action star with a fleeting interest in Zionism to commit to the picture, which started shooting in Belgrade, cheating Tel Aviv, until the action star got kidnapped by Macedonian separatists, and Charlie had to shoot the original Disraeli script on a hidden location in Yugoslavia, cheating 1870s London, without the studios knowing where they were until it was too late, and they realized they had a Best Picture candidate in the beautifully produced, talky melodrama that eventually won the big one, while Charlie sat in the Shrine Auditorium catatonic in his rented tuxedo, barely able to make it to the stage to accept his award in front of a planet-wide TV audience. All that was water under the bridge, though you would have thought, as Charlie often did, that the Oscar would have at least allowed him to skate for a couple of years, enjoying fat studio housekeeping deals while developing his next picture. But he hadn't counted on the new lean-and-mean bottom-line studio management philosophy brought on by vertical integration and balance sheet accountability his girlfriend getting shocked to death on his front lawn, the Nasdaqs going south, or the general law of diminishing returns as he passed birthdays that progressively defined him as an endangered species in the youth-sucking ecology of the film business. So there he was, on the second floor of the Brentwood Unitarian Church Annex, staring down the group leader, a reedy woman named Phyllis who was five years into recovery after having maxed out every charge card she could get her hands on. There were only twenty minutes left before coffee and bagels, and he wasn't going to crack now. A woman wearing aviator glasses with a band-aid holding them together, a Milwaukee brewer's windbreaker and sweatpants, raised her hand. "'Thank you, Wilma,' Phyllis said, all the time keeping her eyes on Charlie. "'Well,' said Wilma, "'I finally told Carl to move out. I had six years invested in that relationship, and like I said last meeting, it was suffocating me. I could barely breathe. You have no idea.' When the collection basket came around, Charlie contributed two dollars, a dollar less than Phyllis suggested, but given the fact that he had seven dollars in his pocket, a generous contribution nonetheless, in that it amounted to a significant percentage of his net worth, and then stiffed it when they sent the basket back around a second time to make up what they claimed they needed to cover the coffee and the bagels. When sharing was over, Phyllis asked people to raise their hands if they were willing to be called before the next meeting and everyone but Charlie and a guy sitting across the room from him dutifully raised their hands. He was a short, wiry guy, maybe late forties, with bleached teeth, wearing a nicely cut sport jacket, pressed slacks, Italian shoes, and tinted glasses. 
During coffee and bagel time, this man approached Charlie and introduced himself. Kermit Fenster, he said, violating the rule about using last names. How are you doing? Charlie responded. You're in the entertainment business, aren't you? Charlie flinched. How do I know that? I know that because I am blessed with a photographic memory for faces. I can remember someone I met at a cocktail party sixteen years ago. Have we met? I saw you on TV, at the Academy Awards, I'm saying three, maybe four years ago. Of course, you were wearing a tux at the time and had a couple of less miles on the odometer. He took out a tin of Altoids, offered Charlie one. No thanks. I could use a twelve-step to get off this shit. Listen, I'd like to talk to you about something. I'm not really in the business anymore. Just want to pick your brain. Maybe next time. I've got to take off now, Charlie said, looking pointedly at the door. Kermit Fenster took out a thick wallet and handed him a business card. Give me a ring when you got a moment.